Hello and welcome back to Resonant Reels. I, I, I realize I do this every time I just put my arms up. Like, <laughs> no one can see this, but this is what I do and Adam sees it. Chandler gets ready for a roller coaster ride every time we start the podcast. I'm just excited, you know? Like, let's go. <laughs> I love talking about movies. Well, that's Chandler. Yeah, that's me. I'm with my great, talented, and beautiful co-host, Adam. That's me. We're having a great day. We're just going, we're vibing. Only positive vibes here because it's going to get dark in a second. Yeah, we, yeah. I have so much, I was going to say to say, but I really figure like I have so many questions. Okay, so this theme is science fiction. Adam chose A Quiet Place, which I I've also, of course, I've seen because it's a recent film and it was, you know, revolutionary. So, of course, I've seen it being a more educated, mature uh, cinema goer. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I just knew it was cool sound design. So I saw that movie. (laughs) Uh, And then I chose Blade Runner, the final cut. You watched the final cut, right? No. I did watch the final cut. No Harrison Ford voiceover narration. No. Good. Okay. No narration full yes. unicorn sequence you saw a unicorn i saw a whole unicorn thing that happened yes i yeah honestly if we can dive in with your film i feel like let's do that because off off the cuff like I, i've done a little research but obviously it seems like you've seen all the iterations of blade runner i only watched the final cut so i would love to hear kind of the you know, the impact of the differences in your opinion and things like that. I, I'm kind of on the mindset now where like the final cut is the end all be all because it's the version that Ridley Scott actually got full artistic control over. Ah, okay. So so funny thing, I wrote a page of notes before I even rewatched this movie. Like that's how much I know this movie because it is so defining in me as a person from when I watched this of what I like, what I'm passionate for. <laughs> and like, this is like science fiction at its peak, like straight up. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to throw this at Adam. He's probably never heard of it or barely has heard of it. Completely never seen it. Totally know this. Know this going in. Totally never seen it. Had definitely heard of it. Did have to briefly remind myself that the maze runner and blade runner are two entirely different films see i don't know how that works in your brain because i'm like that that is what how do you confuse those but i i watched this movie at a very young age arguably maybe too young yeah i feel like i was still too young to watch this movie (laughs) (laughs) so so originally blade runner came out in 1982 so it's a really scott piece um, so this is like a few years after Alien. And like Alien did really well in 79, I think, is when Alien came out. And like they did Alien on like a $10 million budget or something like that. $10, $11 million budget and like made over $100 million worldwide in box office alone, which is crazy. The studio was like, yeah, do something you want to do. So he's like, I want to do Blade Runner, which is based off of a Philip K. Dick novel or a story, I guess, technically. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Production went through some turmoil in the post-production process. Mainly that. like, I think pre-production and production, a lot of really interesting stuff. I mean, there, there has been interviews with Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott that like they didn't work super well together on set because Ridley Scott was still a very young director and storyteller, and Harrison Ford's like been around the block. You know, he's already, he's already done two Star Wars movies. He's about to do another kind of thing, or he's he's probably already filmed it. And now he's filming this. Harrison Ford also reflects that like most of his frustration was mainly actually at the studio because they kept calling him back specifically for the stupid voiceover narration because the studio felt like the audiences wouldn't understand the movie. And so the original U.S. theatrical release is so different because there's like 11 narration moments with Harrison Ford. I don't know. I don't even think that's the, no, only three, I think, for the original theatrical release. But then there's an international release that still had that minimal narration. But then when they did the US home release, they, or uh, US television release, because, you know, movies ran on TV, they added more narration 
which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, also, lots of scenes were less violent, so a lot of violence was cut down greatly. But then also, like scenes were also re-edited without Ridley Scott knowing about it of interactions of dialogue between people and stuff like that. But then in 1992, they did the director's cut, which they essentially wrote to Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott sent notes back, but then he wasn't part of the process. <laughs> so this other guy, I forget his name. Is that Michael Eric, the film preservationist? Yes, I believe so. It might be Arik, Eric, some A-R-I-C-K. So he did changes. So they cut all the narration in the 1992 director's cut, which is, was great. And they added only a small part of the unicorn dream sequence back. And then they removed the happy ending. So I, fr I totally forgot. In the original theatrical release, they added this whole happy ending of Deckard and Rachel essentially driving off in a spinner into the sunset. Adam, spinners are the fl flying cars. Yes, thank you. They're only really, like super well known now because of just uh, the model design, because this movie is just filled with so many model sets and recreations, and the, the like style of it all is so brilliant. So much kit bashing, which is a technique of model making, where it's it's all the uh, unused parts of like normal model building, and they put that to like extra detail work on buildings and stuff like that which is brilliant oh that's actually super sick yeah and then finally in 2007 which is now what 25 years after the original release of this movie they did the final cut which gave complete artistic control back to ridley scott so he's there for the whole process Everything was converted to digital now, which was like a whole big thing about this. So it was digitally remastered. They added the full unicorn dream sequence back in. Um, they added back in essentially the international cut version with the more violent and extended and alternate scenes kind of thing, because that was more of Ridley Scott's vision. During this whole process, they filmed the documentary because they... it Technically, in the final cut, there's a little bit of CGI additions because... There was like a whole scene that the audio was completely out of sync. And Ridley's like, I need him to say these lines because this is what the lines were supposed to be. But like Harrison's mouth moves a different way. So like like the audio team did a great job to redo the whole audio for the movie to still make it like that whole soundscape. But like there's a whole messed up scene. And so they had Harrison Ford's son do the lines and they like captured him and CG'd his chin onto Harrison's chin, essentially, to make it look like he said those words. Like, you can't see it. You, you don't notice it at all. There's a lot of, like, these really big changes that needed to happen because of just how the film was being kept up or how it was, like, originally released and stuff like that. So it's kind of crazy how messy this movie was because of a studio thinking they knew better and didn't give artistic control back to the director. You still get some of that now because, you know, studios at the end of the day, they want to make money off of these projects of filmmakers kind of thing. But like filmmakers do want to just be artsy. Also, there's supposedly a four hour version that Ridley Scott originally showed studio executives that has never seen the light of day. So that that is just background of like the version. So we, we watched the final cut, which is what I truly believe is the version of Blade Runner everyone should watch. That's interesting. I, first of all, could not possibly imagine getting through this film with narration. I'm very sorry for everybody who that was their experience with, with this movie. That actually kind of blows my mind that that was the choice that got made. So I guess my question is, having watched both, because you said that the, the 1992, the director's cut that came out, like scrapped the happy ending, quote unquote, which was just Deckard and Rachel driving off together. Yeah. So it's like a continuation of like that last scene that that you saw in the final cut where he picks up that unicorn origami from Gaff, which we assume is from Gaff. There's another shot where they're driving towards a sunset. So it's just like this bright light. It kind of instills like they're happily getting away instead of the ambiguity 
that was originally intended. So they gave it a full grease flying car into the sunset uh, ending. Great. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, like, I wouldn't necessarily call what I watched a happy ending, but I wouldn't call it a, a sad ending. I, it was very ambiguous and like it had heavy it had it had a heaviness to it for sure interesting telling this movie was fucking weird um but it was absolutely everything that i think of when i think of sci-fi like i i feel like this really is he's doing roller coaster arms again in case anybody was curious like i i feel like everything i saw in this film is a hundred percent what i think of when someone's like, describe what sci-fi is to me as a genre, I'd be like, here are all of these key components. I had no idea that Her- this was like one of Harrison Ford's big films. Love Harrison Ford. Thought he did a, a really great job. It was just so strange in a way that I didn't mind because like, it, it's obviously supposed to be very strange. There was a lot of interesting commentary, I will say, that is sprinkled in throughout the dialogue on just like certain, it feels weird to say political topics, but I guess like that could be a phrase, I I guess. There's a lot of themes being dealt with and a lot of symbolism, right? Especially religious symbolism. There's a lot of that. One of the things that stood out to me the most was in the kind of final fight between Roy and Deckard and Roy takes the like the nail spikes and puts them directly through the palms of his hands and I thought that that was such an interesting like making the replicant have the like martyrdom symbolism of like Jesus Christ like I thought that that was fascinating main big question of this movie among like a lot of other smaller questions and you know things to ponder over is how do we treat machines that are practically human? What rights do they have, even if since they're machines? And I, I think that's, it's also a very interesting thing that like we're bringing this up now because AI is like a big thing right now, right? So like it's a question that can be talked about forever, I feel, how it translates to humans and their relationship with ever-evolving technology and how it can replace humans. I really want to, and I mean this genuinely, I, I, and I probably will, like, I, I really want to watch this again from a religious symbolism perspective, like specifically focusing on that. Because even just as we were talking, like, I thought about the scene where Roy goes to confront the guy who like created all the replicants, Tyrell, and kisses him before ultimately crushing him to death with his hands and like even that was very like symbolic of like judas kissing jesus and then like but like to have that be the same character who then is also later doing the symbolism evoking jesus within himself very very fascinating i feel like all of the biblical stuff and there's obviously like frankenstein aspects of like monster and creator and like that dynamic and the very profound like what he says uh, Roy says something to Tyrell of like it's a difficult thing to meet your maker or something like that which yes take that late like take that up front take that religiously but also take that very existentially like let's expand on that further because uh Tyrell He's the head of the Tyrell Corporation who makes all these replicants, their androids, their robots kind of thing that are doing what we're told from the very beginning of the movie, human work in hostile environments that humans can't do. So they're sent off world to go to the mines to start planet colonization habitats or structures or what have you. So they're doing this work that humans can't because they'll, they're too weak physically, right? And Tyrell is head of this corporation, and like he lives in a pyramid, which is very godlike in and of himself. He's he's kind of like this self-appointed god, but like he doesn't have the ego as such. He's curious, right? And then you have Roy, who is one of the newest generations of replicants, the Nexus Six, and 
he knows he's close to death because these replicants have a four-year life expectancy. And so he wants to live longer. And and when he finally meets Tyrell, there there's this exchange of dialogue, and it's very interesting because it is this, like, religious climb for Roy to get there. But then Tyrell also, like, talks to him as it's, he's his child and he calls him father but it feels like father in a more like god sense and like even tyrell says that he is uh, that roy is the prodigal son which is really interesting in the dialogue and then you know he kills his maker and that's poetic in its own right because all roy wants to do is to live because he's 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 also had experiences that no human will ever have which we can get into that final monologue of his later, because that is one of the most brilliant pieces of just cinema ever. But like he's seen things humans haven't, but he won't live long enough to see to experience things humans have. It's interesting because these robots I'm gonna keep calling them robots for people to understand, but I might go back to replicants soon because it's just that's what they are to me. Um these replicants they're made to not have emotion, but specifically the Nexus 6 line, like Roy, have the ability to learn how to have emotion, kind of start generating their own emotions. But it's also weird and conflicting. And like we see that within Roy, where there's a moment where like two of their friends have been retired, which is what it's called when a Blade Runner, Deckard, who's a Blade Runner, kills a replicant because they want to make them not human, which is a very interesting choice of words because it's further dehumanizing them, which I think speaks thematically on so many levels, especially through all human history. And he's meeting with Pris. Pris is like, something's wrong. What's wrong? And he's just trying to figure out what emotion's right. He's about to cry. He gets angry, but he's just like, there's only two of us left. And it's just like you're seeing these two replicants trying to have emotions, but not knowing what emotion's the right emotion. And that's like, that's human nature right there, kind of like generating, which is very, very unique and interesting. Well, I even felt like the intimacy between Roy and Chris was super strange because it, it, it still it still held that. It was like they learned about that emotion and are trying to express that emotion but it was like really weirdly inappropriately timed or like the there was there was like a just in a bodily awkwardness to the physicality of the kiss or like whatever um anytime it happened and like the re- like the really difficult moment for me to watch was like after Deckard killed Chris and Roy, just like you could watch, like that, I, that first of all, what a phenomenal actor. He, like, you watch him have the journey of like, I know what to feel right now, and I'm feeling it, but I can't. Like, it was, it, it was so powerful. And then to just resolve to taking her blood, because even though they're robot replicant, they, like they bleed, like they have blood and he just takes it and like makes a line starting like right under his nose and like down to his chin um over his lips which was also very like evoked a lot of like tribal sort of imagery as well um just with the the different face markings and things that the replicants wind up adopting kind of throughout the the film as well but like that that was his solution to like try to figure out how he was he was feeling was heartbreaking and like you wind up because like in the beginning of the movie you know when we learn about when we see roy whatever i was like okay this is the bad guy noted and then like the movie keeps going on and i'm like you are the antagonist but i do not think that you are the bad guy like is is how i I start to wind up i'm like you are the roadblock for our harrison ford character but you are not like a bat, you're not a bad guy. Like he even said, his character even says in that final fight sequence, or no, is it with me? I think it's it's when he's with Tyrell that he's that he's like, I've done 
I've done bad things. Like I've, I've done bad things. And even that moment was almost like when you go to confession at church and it's like confessing to his quote unquote father, like this godly father, the things that he has done wrong. And the response is like, we, we all do, we all do bad things. Like we've all, we all make mistakes. And I was like, fascinating. But like Tyrell, like goes further where he's like, it's okay. We've all done that, but you've also done great things because he knows yes. how great these machines he's created are kind of thing. And it's just this weird power play in a sense of being this essentially religious metaphor of this godlike figure. And the, the symbolism too throughout the film which took me a second to catch on to, but how much eyes are focused on, like Roy kills Tyrell by crushing his head, but he starts with jabbing his thumbs like into Tyrell's eyes and like popping his eyes. And like our first introduction to Roy is like when they break into, they're in some freezing cold location. They're at a, uh, a guy who manufactures eyeballs for the replicants. Yeah. And, and like, even that in and of itself and like, it just seeing and, and that, and, and taking that very, I mean, it's, it's, it, that was a very heavy handed, I feel like symbolism that did not feel heavy handed, if that makes sense, getting to watch that and being like, yeah, how do we perceive reality? And who are we to perceive the difference between the replicants and like the humans? And like, that was, um, I really loved that Rachel asks Deckard like have you ever accidentally retired a human and like the fact that she even chose the words like retired a human directly shows like what you're you know you're it's murder like like it's you're murdering replicants you're murdering humans but sure have you ever retired a human and to know that in that moment that you find out you know a few moments later but that like she doesn't realize that she's a replicant when she asks that I think was also very profound of like okay a replicant that thinks they're human still choosing to use the word retire when talking about other humans there there was a lot of depth to this movie that I I truly was not expecting and it was just coded in production value weirdness in the best possible way like the production value of this the production de design of this film is phenomenal in my opinion i really again i feel like this is not a movie that i can just watch once and like happily go on with my life like i feel like i absolutely want to watch it at least one more time if not more to kind of really grasp all of the the layers to it to expand more on uh the symbolism of eyes Perfectly what you said, but furthermore, eyes are also played around of this window into the soul. Like that's a big kind of thing that plays off because uh, the they do a avoid cops test is what it's called, which is how they determine if someone's a replicant or not because they can quite easily be among us. They're also outlawed on Earth. They're not allowed to be on Earth and it's a crime. So that's why they have these Blade Runners to retire them. So they use this test, which is essentially like they zoom in on the eye and they look for emotional responses within the eye. And so it's, there's a lot of this imagery of how the eye is a doorway into one's soul. And because that's what makes us human, you know. But then that's also played with of like, I mean, throughout the film, we see people's eyes get this like weird kind of like light in the pupil kind of thing that seems unnatural and and that and that's a game that's played with us as the audience of like is that for us as the audience to determine if they're not human or not kind of thing and it's just this it's this confusing thing that happens throughout the movie to keep you guessing because you start to question if Deckard is a human or not if he's a replicant and that's like an age-old, since the movie came out, big question among everyone who's seen this movie is, is Deckard a replicant or not? Yeah. And the I, I started to wonder that myself 
just due to some of the dialogue that like happens between him and Rachel specifically. Like I feel like the first time I had that thought was when she asked him if, if he's ever accidentally retired a human being. And that was kind of the first time that I was like, is Deckard a human being? Like that was like that was kind of the first that was kind of the first time I had that thought. And I I I like that it is ambiguous and vague kind of throughout the whole film. Like we don't get answers to really anything like at all. And cuz even even kind of like the the resolution Deckard doesn't kill Roy. Roy just dies because he's reached the end of his four-year lifespan and how like crazy and obviously it's a movie so like of course it does but like in the in the world of the of the shit of the narrative you know that like there's this huge fight sequence and and that happens to be when he expires is is in that moment let alone after saving Deckard's life um, because he, because this is all happening, like as Deckard is hanging one-handed from a like a beam that is sticking out from a building, and if he drops, he's homie, homie's dead. Like he's gonna die. He's he's on the rooftop of a building, and he slips, and as he is literally at the start of freefall, like Roy grabs him and lifts him back onto the roof. Again, it was just like a you're not the bad guy. It was like you're not the bad guy that that I thought you were when you were first introduced. And it, it, it makes the audience start to question the that again with the eyes perception um of like and I feel like that's why I want to go back and watch this movie again. It's like watching it from the perspective of knowing like that the replicants aren't necessarily these like bad people. They're technically people, in my opinion, uh, getting through the film. But that is the question of the film is, are they people, I guess. It was so weird. It was so, it's such a weird movie, but it's very good. I mean, we could, we could talk more about the, uh, the, the, the ending, because that, that, that sequence itself on the rooftop, it's raining as well, which is very poetic. And that's even further stated in uh, Roy's last monologue. But like that, that that moment where like Roy dies essentially, he he also let goes of a dove and a dove flies out and like that is like symbolic of like is that his soul going to heaven? But also like you have Deckard here who's it could have killed me but it didn't. It saved my life, and he has this whole like we see him just in his face though have this whole like break of reality of what is real like am i even human why am i doing this which is very interesting to see a character break in such a way from dealing with someone who was for the last 10 minutes quite maniacally trying what it seemed like to kill him spewing yelling howling being very tribalistic like which is very also interesting to see because it's kind of like looking at human history we started by just shouting and howling and stuff like that so it takes on a very very neanderthal place of humans but he is a replicant he's like a robot so it's very interesting the choice there uh roy ends with as he's holding a dove and sitting in the rain, this brilliant, brilliant monologue, which is known as the Tears and Rain monologue. And it's something I quote all the time because I love it because it's so science fiction-y because it's, it, even in and of itself, has so much science fiction lore within it that doesn't relate to the rest of the movie at all, but like is still so questioning of humanity. It's also interesting because originally in the script, it was much longer than it was chopped down right before filming. And then the night before, Rutger Hauer was like, I'm going to do a little twist on it when we film it tomorrow kind of thing. And that's so part of it is improv. Specifically, the tears and rain is improv, which is really interesting. 
So he starts with, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. And then he dies, and then we get this like slow motion sequence of him letting a dove go and fly away, and Deckard trying to grasp with what he's just lived through. Adam's still stunned. I didn't know I could perform it so I, well. <laughs> no, I just there is such a obviously like in in an in, in an obvious way as well, there is a very heavy theme of like mortality throughout all of this. And I read that part of that is because Ridley Scott's like brother had recently passed away. And so he was taking a lot of that emotion and wanting to put it into this film. Like he, he wanted to emphasize, he said like the, the pain. I think that that monologue so beautifully communicates that as well in in so many ways it and this is like a very like i don't know philosophical interpretation take whatever in a very specific direction but it, it it's true like when someone dies all all of that is just gone there is no database storage there is no memory bank like all of that person's existence their their witness to what life is their their witness testimony to life is just gone i feel like that got so beautifully communicated in that moment and then literally just dies like literally just dies the second he's done speaking and and i really i really like that and i did not know that the actor decided to power decided to kind of riff on it a little bit and i think that's so fucking cool like that is that is truly the epitome of like an actor knowing their character and like doing their homework like it really is some other dialogue that i found really interesting i think earlier in that kind of fight sequence with roy and deckard i, th- I think it's when deckard's hanging off the building i think where he's he goes quite an experience to live in fear isn't it that's what it is to be a slave, which is really poetic and interesting because he has this awareness that he's learned from human history and realizes what he is in this world structure and communicating that and like like being upfront and blunt to Deckard, who is, you know, tasked to hunt these people down. And then earlier uh leon who's one of the other replicants he's like the second one deckard kills he's got a couple one-liners when he's fighting deckard and he's like being tossed around because he's like a he's a loader replicant so like he's made to lift tons literal tons of weight (laughs) which is kind of insane to see him fighting this person who's supposed to be human and tossing him around and he he goes with dialogue of painful to live in fear wake up time to die kind of thing and that's just very interesting that like these replicants have this connection because they all escaped together but it's really interesting that they also all have this connection of how they now realize their perception of the world around them and how they fit in it i think that one of the other things that kind of ties into everything we've been saying too is that rachel had human memories implanted that she fully believed were her own human memories of her mom and her and like her childhood and like her growing up and things and like that just further that further pushed the question at what point if we're considering it them to be not human like at what point then are they human like if they're if they're feeling and they believe that that these are their memories and they in Rachel's case have an emotional response to said memories and things like at what point then do you categorize that as as that is now a human being, which I I think was 
added to the ambiguity of the ending of like when Gaff says he reminds Deckard like Rachel's not, you know, she's she's not going to survive, like she's not going to she's not going to live. And but then he tags on and he's like but then again who does? And it's like, you know, these replicants are made to live for 4 years, but they're alive. They are living for 4 years. And we're all alive for I don't know, 90 years if it's a good one, you know, like, like, you know, on average, whatever, somewhere around there. And, and it just, in the same way that they're alive for four years, we're alive for 90. We just happen to be lucky enough to have a little bit more time, but we don't get unlimited time either. Like we don't get to go to our creator and get more time. Like we are all Roy at the end of the day, like wanting more and not literally not being able to get that and we will die well i feel like we've talked a lot but like of course there's still so much more we could talk about with this movie in order not to make this a super 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 long episode because we still have a whole other movie to talk about if you guys want to hear more of us chatting about blader and other things like that maybe we have like a fun episode where we just dive in more on stuff we've already watched let us know that's an idea answer specific questions can go on tangents yeah i mean i've also had the idea of like oh maybe we try and like incorporate like a live stream or something like once every now and then oh that'd be cool hell yeah let us know if you guys think that's a good idea uh but anyways let's move on to a quiet place which was adam's choice it was it was my choice so much this and again i i stated this in episode one you know like i feel like i have a very niche set of movies that I enjoy as a human and uh, sometimes I don't break out of that so sci-fi is another one of those things for me where I like don't I've seen I've seen Star Wars you know I've seen Star Trek but outside of those very staple sci-fi things I have not delved into a whole lot however I am a firm believer that A Quiet Place qualifies as a sci-fi film. It, Chandler begrudgingly agrees with me. Um, and so I picked A Quiet Place mostly for that reason, but also I wanted a chance to be able to talk about how much this film influenced me as a sound designer and the idea of the absence of sound being just as powerful of a choice as having like a, a, a score. Like I said, I don't love horror slash psychological thrillers, um, which I do believe that this also qualifies in that category of like a psychological thriller. And, you know, one like a, a very helpful thing that was said to me one time is like, if you watch a horror movie on mute, it's not scary. Because half the time it really is the sound that is like amping you up. It's it's crafted in such a way that like your heartbeat starts to increase a little bit. You're you get sweaty. You're kind of on edge, and like you don't even really necessarily realize that that's happening. And then boom, jump scare, or like boom, really loud sound effect, and that is just act like a door creaking, and it's the false it's the false scare that gets everybody in the audience to go ah, you know. I feel like this movie does the exact same thing, but just in reverse, which is so fucking cool. I also had no idea in all of the previews until I saw it that there were like alien creatures involved. Like you can tell from the previews that there's like something scary, right? I assumed it was going to be like some sort of invisible force type thing. Zero idea I was about to see these ugly alien creature things and be able to be destroyed with like shotguns. That was cool. Uh, <laughs> but I just, I, I don't necessarily, I can't go into this movie being like, it's so profound for all of these themes that it has, like, you know, like, Blade Runner, but I but I think it is a cool take on how to just do a genre of a movie that keeps it unique and fresh, and it's not just like a formula that we see 
kind of repeated and regurgitated. And I, and I loved the inclusiveness of like speaking in sign language in this film was something that we don't see really like at all, unless the movie specifically centers around somebody who's deaf or hearing impaired. And, and even though that is like included in this movie, it is not the main focus or narrative of this movie. And so like, I thought that that was a really cool thing to kind of involve as well. So Chandler, why, why I said, you know, you begrudgingly agree with me that this qualifies as sci-fi. I know you have a lot of, a lot of thoughts about um, John Krasinski specifically that you've, you've hinted at. I have this weird love hate relationship with John Krasinski, which I can dive into in a sec. But like, to me, this, yes, you can have the tiny, tiny little footnote that it's science fiction because these are alien creatures that have landed to Earth. I will, I will give it that. But to me, it's very much a creature feature, like horror creature feature to me. But it's a, it's a very interesting, different take because it's not like this big bad monster kind of thing that you got to try and figure out how to kill. It's like, you know, you're trying to actually survive it because it's the verge of the end of the human race, essentially, because noise attracts these creatures and kills you, which is very interesting. Like, I, I bet it's been done before, but I think this is like one of the mainstream ones that have been successful in American cinema because of the approach to sound design alone. Like, I will give credit where credit's due to be like, I want to record the audio on set as we're filming so the crew has to be as quiet as possible. That takes guts. Like, bravo to all of you to, like, deal with that because a film crew is a lot of people and having that many people be quiet kind of thing because most... Hollywood films. They record dialogue later in ADR to be dubbed over anyways to work better in the sound mix because dialogue is like needs to be the forefront of movies kind of thing. Even though that's a big debate right now in the sound design community because a lot of directors, big example is Christopher Nolan wants to make dialogue more muddy and realistic in movies. So it just makes arguably a bad mix sonic mix but that's a whole sound design shift right now in the industry that is generating a lot of controversy and uh, discussion which is really interesting but yeah no like this movie really plays around with sound and how how we as the audience hear because not only do we like have the ability to hear what they hear we also do take on the perspective of the deaf girl where she doesn't hear at all. And we switch around between that because, like, uh, I mean, one of the big plot points is the new hearing aid that she has, that they're trying to get a hearing aid that works for her because whatever the story, I don't know the exact story, but, like, clearly the old one broke or something and they've been trying to fix it to make it work. And so they keep going through different parts and designs and John Krasinski's character is, like, somehow, like, a amateur machine engineer or something like that like i don't under it's really interesting how how much skill he has because i don't know anything about any of these characters backstories which is really interesting so it's really interesting to have that perspective where like we just lose sound completely and like we have to use what they're allowing us to see visually to try and figure out what's going on and that's arguably even more terrifying which is really well done i will give it that yeah, so I think that the technology use in this film ultimately I think also is like a flag of sci-fi for me in the sense that even though it is not like some cool new technology that's been developed, it is a technology that is like stumbled upon as a resource against the other giant sci-fi element which is these aliens because it's a it's a cochlear implant rather than just a, a hearing aid and so one of the main things associated is a, is a magnet and so that uh, we get this moment of when it came in contact with like the speakers and things that were in the basement of the house like it feeds back essentially like is kind of what's ultimately happening and yeah it like fucks up the the 
creatures, the aliens, whatever. And like, I don't know if you've ever like hugged anybody who wears hearing aids, but I will, my mom wears hearing aids. And like, when I hug her, I can hear, and I don't know if she hears it, but from the outside, I can hear it emit like a, like a pitch when we go to like hug, if I like brush, you know, past your ear or something, or like when she puts them in and takes them out, like there's like just a very high frequency that gets emitted before they're like in place and actually like taking in audio. Um, and And she's had me like put them in before as well. And it's a really fascinating experience being a a fully hearing individual and and putting in a hearing aid uh because it is it was just so fascinating to hear like what she hears but when i put them in and took them out myself i did not hear the the high-pitched noise that i hear from the outside when she puts them in and takes them out and so even just from like that perspective for somebody to think of that and incorporate that as a technological advancement for this society at this point in time, like as the human race is like coming to this end, I thought was also just really fucking cool. And like uh, the, the the development of these aliens and like them being so attuned to sound and all of the different components that play into that. Now, I will say there there are things that I take issue with in this film for number one which i think is such a dumb thing to have an issue with but what the fuck are you doing having sex with your wife in a society like this and then she gets pregnant and you're gonna try to have a baby when the whole point is that there are creatures who kill you at the drop of a pin like that was crazy. That's a crazy plot point narrative. And like, I get they needed some drama or something to like happen. And so that's what was chosen. But at the same time, I try to look at it as like, they're still human. They are still trying to figure out how to live a quote unquote normal life, like in this world, adapting to it. I was absolutely not expecting the young boy to like die in the beginning of the film that was something that really caught me off guard and it was heartbreaking what i thought was also very interesting was that they didn't prolong that moment of him dying we very quickly moved on but and the reason i said lingered wasn't a good word is because the feelings of that event were very much still present but we did not sit in that specific moment for longer than the instant that it happened, which did, I feel like, set up a really nice kind of tone in the film in general of like, we are not going to sit in these moments. Things are just going to happen and we are going to move on from them, which was a, a, a you know, a, a narrative theme or, or a tool, I guess, that, that was used frequently. That that beginning sequence is is what I call the it moment because the new it had that with where Pennywise takes the first kid in like the beginning ten minutes fifteen minutes of the movie like you learn the expectations that you're gonna have to deal with as an audience member of how dark severe consequences are uh, a thing I found interesting Krasinski wanted a a score for the audience so it didn't have to feel like a silence experiment. So I was like, okay, I mean, I understand it's very American Hollywood to actually have a soundtrack to your movie. I mean, it does help building emotion and tension. Like, I understand the intent, but I'm also like this like fan of European cinema as well, of like weird Russian films and stuff, where they just, there's no such thing as American <laughs> standardized practice kind of thing, and they just do their own thing. So I was just like, I want to have an only diegetic sound movie. But that's me. That's just me. I understand why it, it worked for American audiences. I get it. Also, the fact that Krasinski let himself get killed. Very cool. As like, you know, I mean, as the the director of the the film and being like the main dad guy um, and also a hand in the screenwriting. I enjoyed that that did not get in the way of the story because I feel like 
it was a very cool plot point that they that he sacrificed himself for his kids. And again, like his final moment being the fact that he signed I love you to Reagan, which like he has had this tension with because you kind of and again, there's like no there's almost no dialogue. And so the fact that you just pick up on the fact that he kind of blames her for the young boy's death because she gave him the toy back that he put the batteries into and like it went off and that's like what got him that was the it moment i enjoyed that as well i will say i've not seen the second movie i have not yet seen a quiet place 2 so i'm i i can't speak outside of just this as an isolated film versus this is like something that seems like it's continued on. I will say that I was upset to hear that there was a second film because I felt like this beautifully exists as its own thing. Again, I can't speak to it because I haven't seen it, but it outwardly, like like looking at it, kind of just felt like a situation of they saw that this movie did really well and they wanted to continue profiting off of like this as like a franchise. And next thing we knew, we had a quiet place too. You're not Chandler is vigorously nodding his head at me. So is that kind of the vibe of the the second movie? Would you say a bit? I mean, it does some interesting stuff, but like it it shifts genre kind of. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's more adventure instead of thriller. There's less focus on like the same atmosphere that they created in the first movie because there's different goals and tensions for the story. So it feels like it definitely got to what what I think what happened to another horror film in the past. The Descent is this like great horror film on its own, but then they made The Descent Part 2 and it was just like, no, I like the weirdness that the first one had as a standalone movie and this one and A Quiet Place feel like they kind of did that. But don't worry, Adam. They have a plan for a part three and a spinoff movie called Day One. Oh God! Okay, do we, is Day One gonna be like Day One of these creatures descending onto the planet? Is that the idea? Yes, but not with these characters in this trilogy that they're focusing on, because Part Two actually starts with Day One with this family, and then it it does essentially what the first movie did, where they started in the past and then went back to the present but they decided to show day one which was like actually a really cool starting sequence of the movie i will give part two that that was really cool to see that but like with that setup i knew that they were shifting essentially genre or how they were telling the story compared to the first movie so that was disappointing to me because i like staying with this really interesting soundscape I'm interested if day one will be more sci-fi than because just by nature, if that's the story that they're going to tell is the descent of these creatures. Also in this movie, one of the things I forgot is the old guy in the woods, that whole scene that they like stumble upon. That was also very disturbing. That was a moment that just, I don't know. Sometimes there's just stuff that like sticks with you. And again, great job by that actor i don't know who that was uh but just being at your wits end being at being at your literal capacity and almost like the way that it was shot was that we were like on the side of the family like as if we were standing with them watching this guy and i felt the anxiety i felt the emotion of like please do not make a sound like please do not scream right now like like please like please just and then he just lets loose and he he's fucking gone like they grab him like that that was a that was another very well crafted moment it's very haunting that moment because they just they're 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 walking back and they they're passing this like house that clearly has kind of been partially destroyed by the creatures kind of thing but like we're kind of following the perspective of this of the sun, and all of a sudden we run into John Krasinski's character who stopped because something's not right, and then we see like the horrific woman's body that's been torn apart, and this man who 
is he's giving up and then he just screams and that's just terrifying because this man waits for someone to witness him giving up and that's that is just terrifying itself in nature which is something that can really stick with you which is really well done so there's that whole thing of like to exist is to be george berkeley took that and was like to exist is to be perceived and that is i think like the perfect philosophy to put towards that moment of like that guy waiting to be perceived like he is in nothingness and like i mean i think about that sometimes in a weird way like my life right now is very don't get me wrong i am loving having just gone from absolute crazy chaos to like no responsibility pretty much and like my girlfriend goes to work and i am just home and i'm quiet and we are staying in a very just like no noise neighborhood sort of place and it's like if i just sit on the couch for long enough there like a hour and a half can go by before really anything of merit happens and if something of merit happens it's because i have gotten up off the couch and decided to like turn on the television or something and i will find myself in these moments uh, obviously with no stakes at all because there are not creatures who will come kill me if i decide to start make noise but that like it, it does start to become like a, do I exist? Am I real? I should go for a walk. I should go like see that other human beings are around that can make eye contact with me. And like, so taking that philosophy of like to be is to be perceived and like putting that on an, on a film that there is no talking. There is only like direct eye contact and like, hand gestures and then to take this guy who has now lost everything so not only is there no sound but there is no eye contact there is nothing there is nothing there to remind you that you are a person that you are like alive and for him to wait until he was stumbled upon to be like great i am alive and now i would like to be dead goodbye like that's fucking crazy. That's what I got. I don't know if you have any. <laughs> like I said, there wasn't there wasn't a, a lot of depth per se to my movie. Just I just felt like it was a a good a good film, good quality film. Yeah, it's a very interesting world. I mean, bravo to Emily Blunt. Let's give credit where credits due. She did amazing. Oh, yes, going through that emotional roller coaster. The minute she steps on that nail, I want to die. That's like a visceral. Yeah, <laughs> you just had you just had a physical reaction. Like when I think about it, I have a fucking uh, and like I like oh god, my body wants to like freak out when I think about that. Yeah, she's phenomenal. She I I really enjoyed I really enjoyed her performance. And what I thought was interesting as well was that she had zero interest in being in this movie, despite her husband's. Uh, involvement in it and then apparently she like read the script and she was like oh no I have to do this movie um, so like went from I really don't care have fun with your little project and then like read the script and was like JK can I actually be a part of your little project I thought was very funny <laughs> yeah two solid science fiction movies <laughs> as I do with air quotes <laughs> I'll give it to you. Fine, fine. Two science fiction movies we talked about. I'll just, I will, we will expand your mind of what science fiction is slowly through this podcast, hopefully. Slowly. Yes. We will probably have another science fiction and I will, I will provide something that it's better than, than a, a vague science fiction, mostly psychological thriller movie. <laughs> <laughs> But next up, because we're entering Halloween season, because to me, Halloween, unlike all the stores and marketing and other stuff, starts when October starts, because that's how it has to be to me. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's like it's got to be October, because I mean, I guess I grew up with a lot of like scary movie TV stations that like did a big Halloween marathon every day kind of thing when October hit. Like I think it was like the Channel Chiller or something when that used to be a thing. But to start off, 
we're going to start with some family-friendly Halloween kind of movie uh, that we each are going to pick. And then slowly through the month, we'll, we'll get scarier. And I'll get Adam to watch something really scary or, like, shake his soul from deep within. Different than what Blade Runner did. Oh, boy. So what movie do you got? Yeah, so for my movie, my family-friendly Halloween movie, we will be watching Halloween Town, the 1998 classic. Amazing. It's, it is a classic. I, I do love this movie. It has a special place. And then my movie is the 1995 film Casper, which is going to be great because it's going to be great for me to rewatch this. I haven't watched this movie in so long, but like I think I was watching some video talk about some of like the the VFX or like the the special effects that they did for this movie and I was just like I need to rewatch this movie because clearly they did something revolutionary. So I'm excited. Very excited. That's what I'm that's what I'm excited to to keep to specifically to see is like because it's been over a decade easily since I've seen this since Casper. All right. Uh, as always, let us know if you've got any thoughts, ideas for us. Please like, subscribe, rate the podcast and all the platforms and everything. Uh, and let us know if that, that live stream idea sounds interesting where like we can live stream and chat with you guys live and just talk about what we're just watching outside the podcast and stuff like that. Yeah, you can see our beautiful faces uh, instead of just our voices. But that is it for us with Resonant Reels. I've been Chandler, as always. I'm going to keep being Adam, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. See you. Bye.